take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. It's been a rather lengthy time since I called out a book other than Matthew on a Sunday morning, I think. 1 Peter chapter 2. All right, starting in verse 11, this is the Word of God. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Let's pray briefly. Lord, we don't always like to listen to your word. Would your spirit be pleased to work that we might listen? For Christ's sake, amen. So preaching on this last week, and a number of the kind of questions that were uh, struck up, and I think very useful questions, were, preacher, how how do I put this into practice? What would I do with this? It sounded really strange last week. It almost sounded in your sermon like you said I was supposed to submit to the government, which is good because that's exactly what I said. We're paying attention. We're making progress. But the good question of how I put it into practice. And so I thought, well, you know what I can do is I'll just take an illustration and I'll take that illustration and kind of walk us through it from a different passage. And the more that I thought about that, I was like, well, which illustration could I use? And as I thought about the illustrations, I realized that any illustration I pick, my inbox is going to be filled with emails from you recommending that I watch InfoWars, Alex Jones' uh, comments and quotes, or Rachel Maldow, whichever side of the aisle you're on. And I was like, I'm not going to do that. So I'm not going to talk about vaccines, or masks, or taxes, or speed limits, or anything like that. Instead, I'm going to talk about the color purple. What? No, actually, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have you imagine a situation. Imagine a situation in which there is a president that you don't like. Either, again, the last president, the current president, the next president, or if you're a libertarian, any president. Imagine we are under a president that we do not like, 
and said president passes a law, this is key, a law that you must wear a purple shirt. Everybody, in fact, has to wear a purple shirt. It's what the government requires. It is a law. You must wear a purple shirt. Now, some of you in here already, now providentially, I got this one worked out, it wasn't planned. Some of you are already excited because you're already wearing purple shirts. You're like, sweet, it's my favorite. Well, here's the problem that some of you might know. I hate purple. Like, I hate the color purple. I, like, I really, really don't like the color purple. I mean, I don't like green, but purple is way worse. And so I don't want to wear a purple shirt because I hate purple. I don't know if you've noticed this. I have literally, in 13 years, never worn a purple shirt. In fact, actually, I've worn a purple bow tie once in 13 years. I hate purple. And we can imagine a situation in which the government is saying, well, a purple shirt's good for you. The scientists are telling us a purple shirt's good for you. But then, of course, the other scientists are saying, well, that's false. So I don't know, should I believe them or should I not? And we can imagine a situation in which the government is telling you your purple shirt is good for your neighbor. But then there's other scientists that are saying that it's not. And so we end up in a situation where perhaps we're a little bit confused because maybe the government's even lied and contradicted themselves. Maybe they've said one thing and then maybe five days later said the opposite thing. And then maybe five days after that gone back to the first thing. And you can imagine a situation like this. It's not hard for us to imagine, right? Some good and godly Christians would be excited because they love the purple shirts and it's their favorite shirt because it's their most comfortable. Some of us, on the other hand, might hate it. Right? I don't even own one. I'd have to find one and I'm sure it would be uncomfortable and itchy. It's not hard to imagine this situation, is it? Sounds a little bit like real life but maybe perhaps without all the baggage and the crazy emails that I'll get for the next week. The sermon today, I want to just briefly look at this case study of what do I do with a purple shirt in light of 1 Peter chapter 2. What does the Bible tell me about obeying a government that is passing a law that is obviously nonsense, in passing a law that is obviously inconsistent, and even with their reasoning changing along the way. What do I do? Well, point one, Christians are called to submit to the government, this is the key, as an act of obedience to God. Christians are called to submit to the government as an act of obedience to God. Now, look at what Peter says here. Now, this is amazing, uh, right? Beloved, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of flesh. This is the type of language that we love in the Bible, right? Hey, Christian, I'm warning you against those sinful desires, those evil temptations. Don't fall prey to the, the, the desires of your flesh. Yay, I like those sermons. They encourage me. Don't be sinful. 
Okay, verse 12, Christian, go live in a way that even those that are non-Christians might look at you and go, oh, all right, that's a pretty moral, moral person, I like that. But when he comes time to apply it specifically to the con- con- uh, um, context of government, be subject to every human institution. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. So now, interestingly, we know some of, again, who these people are. Who is the emperor at the time in which Peter is writing? Well, it's Nero. Nero is going to be the man that in just a few short years after he writes this letter, kills him. Both Peter and Paul are martyred under Nero in his reign. And again, best guess, this is written roughly six to eight years before Nero kills him. Well, okay, who are the governors then that he would be talking about? Well, a couple of them might ring a maybe perhaps recognizable to your ear, a guy named Pontius Pilate. That's a name you probably recognize, kind of responsible for helping kill Jesus. Not on the like list of biblical heroes, right? Not the guy that you want to name your kids after, right? Here are my children, Grace and Hope and Pontius Pilate, right? Nobody does that because he's a bad guy. Next one is Felix, right? Felix is famous for he's the one who helps get Paul murdered. Oh, great. Well done. So none of the guys that are being referenced here in any fashion are actually good humans. They're all the bad guys, Uh, They're some of the people that you can look at through human history and go, oh, yes, they're the villains in every story. Be subject to every human institution, whether it be to Stalin and Hitler or to your local governor who's just as bad. That's, in essence, how this reads. The interesting thing, though, is that Peter adds in a very specific clarification that is the key to this verse. Be subject to them for the Lord's sake. For the early church to obey Nero, it was not to obey Nero. It was to obey the triune God. For the early church to obey Pontius Pilate, It was not to obey Pontius Pilate, it was to obey the living God. For us to obey the last president, the current president, or the future president, it is not to obey President Trump or President Biden or President whoever it is. It is for us to obey the triune God. That's why our Westminster Confession of Faith has that, why do we pray for them? Why do we subject ourselves to them? Why do we honor them? It's a matter of conscience because God has explicitly commanded that Christians are to do this out of duty to God. I'll give you a couple of of illustrations of what this might look like. Uh, Many of you know, maybe perhaps some don't, I am a PhD student. I'm currently working uh, through a, um, a PhD in Christian preaching. Uh, I'm at a Southern Baptist institution, and when I signed up and enrolled for school, uh, I had to sign a contract that as long as I was a student, uh, I would in no way partake of any form of alcohol or tobacco product at all. Now, that certainly goes far beyond uh, what Scripture commands, 
certainly. Now, I could look at that as saying, well, it, it's a nonsense sort of vow. It's a nonsense sort of law. Jesus himself drank alcohol. Jesus himself made really good alcohol. Uh, why would I not be allowed to drink it? You know what? Since it's a bad law, I can just kind of ignore it. I've been a doctoral student now for five years. I haven't had a single sip of alcohol because I view my abstinence not as obedience to Al Mohler and the board of Southern Seminary. I view my obedience as obedience to the triune God. I'm not obeying the school. I'm obeying Jesus. The second illustration, interestingly, is what it means to be an elder in this church or the pastor of this church. We, uh, our leadership is conducted by what's called a session. It's a group of elders. And when we come in, we, we swear a vow along the way that we will be subject to our brothers. And the interesting application of that is that when my brothers that I'm serving alongside of outvote me and occasionally do something that I think is a terrible mistake, I don't get the privilege of not doing what they say. I can give you a great illustration of this. happened this year, actually. I got outvoted on something that I thought was a really stupid mistake. Really dumb. And you know what? I could have walked out of there and I could have passive-aggressively just kind of subtly undermined it to make sure that idea was never implemented. I could have said, well, you know, the guys were, they just didn't understand. They didn't get it. Right? I understand they don't. And I could have quietly just made sure that idea failed. It's not hard to do. I'm the pastor of the church. I live here, right? It's not hard for me to find careful and quiet, passive-aggressive ways to make sure an idea fails. But I didn't do that because, you know what? That would be sinful. Because my obedience to them is not an issue of them. It's an issue of God. So I put it into practice to the best of my ability. And guess what? I found out I was wrong. I was 100% wrong. I wasn't a little bit wrong. I was as wrong as could possibly be found to be wrong. They were right the entire way. Oh, I never would have learned that had I not conducted myself the way that I did. And John Calvin actually makes the point, that's our relationship to the government. You are transactionally receiving blessings from the government. They protect you with the military, whether you like that or not. Maybe you don't like the military, it doesn't matter, they still protect you. They pave the roads, you drive on them whether you like it or not. You, you are transactionally benefiting from them, and so you are transactionally obligated to obey. You do not get the privilege to just be like, well, it's dumb, I'm going to take my ball and go home. I don't have that privilege with the session, I don't have that privilege with Southern Seminary, I don't have that privilege with the government, and neither do you. So we get back to the purple shirt. And realistically, I understand the government's made a law, a stupid law about a purple shirt. They've contradicted themselves over and over again. The scientists have been on both sides. They've contradicted themselves. And we have arguments inside the church over the purple shirt. Should I, should I not? It's itchy. I don't like it. It's uncomfortable. I don't like it. Wear the shirt. Because God told you to. Through the government. Put it on and don't complain. Not because the shirt is good. Not because the shirt does anything. But because your submission is an act of obedience to God. 
It's an act of obedience to God. Even when we think they're wrong to submit. I'm going to let you in a little secret. I don't talk politics in the pulpit very often. I tend to think the government's wrong a lot. You might agree with me on that one. You might disagree. I don't really care either way. It doesn't exempt us from obedience. Peter applies this principle in verse 15. He introduces Christians are called to submit to the government as an act of obedience to God. The application, interestingly, is obedience is part of personal holiness and a part of Christian witness. Obedience is part of personal holiness and a part of Christian witness. Look at verse 15. So why should I do this? Well, for it is the will of God. You're supposed to do it because it is God's will. And that by doing this insane thing of wearing a purple shirt, you put to silence the ignorance of foolish people that might make accusations against you. It's intriguing, again, this goes back to verse 12, how Peter, interestingly, is connecting obedience to Nero and obedience to Pilate and to Felix as being essential for, one, personal holiness, and two, essential for witnessing. You want the church to be able to evangelize more effectively, obey the government. That is a shocking statement, but that is absolutely what Peter is meaning. And I'm going to be honest, I I think American Christians tend to stink at this. We tend to stink when we think about the idea. We get so worked up about the purple shirt. We get so worked up about how it's itchy. We get so worked up about how it's uncomfortable. We get so worked up about how the government's making a stupid law. We get so worked up about how the government's being inconsistent and they're overreaching. All of those things are probably honestly true. They are in this illustration. We get so worked up about those things that suddenly we become the church of the discussion of the purple shirt. We could just change our sign, right? We're getting a new sign made, Lord willing, next couple of weeks. We'll just go ahead and change it, right? Church of the purple shirt or church against the purple shirt. Either one, pick your side, doesn't matter. The illustration's completely unimportant. Instead of it being the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, where we come to church to have our preferences reaffirmed. We come to church to have people kind of encourage our ego, encourage our preferences, encourage our desires. We have people come to us to encourage our politics instead of coming to meet with Jesus. Study American history. Study the church in America. The church has always died immediately following a preoccupation with politics. It's the fastest way to kill a church. Obedience is part of holiness and essential for our Christian witness to others. It does beg a question, though. If Christians are indeed free, 
do we obey the government in everything? I mean, do, do we obey it in absolutely everything? Well, I, I think Peter gives us a, an excellent framework to think about this. Point three, so right, point one, Christians are called to submit to the government as an act of obedience to God. Point two, obedience is part of personal holiness and essential to witnessing to others. Point three, Christians are given the freedom to obey God first and the government second. Christians are given the freedom to obey God first and the government second. Verse 16, live as people who are free. Now, we read this as Americans and we think that's a political statement. And the reason why we think that is a political statement is because we live in the first free country, really, in human history. We live in the country that has pioneered freedom in a way that no one else has in world history. And so we read that and go, oh, well, politics, of course I'm free, right? A home of the free land, brave. Okay, yay. That's not what Peter's talking about. Peter's talking about the freedom that comes from being in Christ. Peter's talking about the freedom that comes from being transformed by the living God. Peter's talking about what it means to have your sins forgiven, that no one can make accusation against you because you are free in Christ Jesus. You have been redeemed. So live as people who are free from sin. And on top of that, don't even use that freedom as a cover-up for evil. Instead, live as servants of God. So what's the overarching thing? Well, this freedom that we have in Christ, it's the freedom to obey God first and the government second. Obviously, God's law trumps human law. God's law is is higher, it's greater, it supersedes human law. So we get the the question, so when do I get to obey the government, or disobey the government? They've told me I have to wear a purple shirt, I hate purple shirts, they're uncomfortable, I don't even own one, I don't want to do that, am I allowed to disobey on that? No, you're not. You wear the shirt. But when am I allowed to disobey the government? And the short answer is this. You are allowed to disobey the government when the government commands you to sin against God. And only when the government commands you to sin against God. Now you can look throughout the entirety of the Bible. There are a handful of illustrations where the Bible endorses Christians for disobeying the government. Only a handful. Just briefly, a couple of them. Exodus chapter 1. The Jewish midwives are, uh, as part of delivering babies, they're given a very specific command from Pharaoh. And the command that they're given from Pharaoh is kill the Jewish babies when they're born. They're literally commanded to murder. So what do they do? Well, they disobey. They don't kill the babies because God told them not to murder. And the way that Moses tells the story, he certainly endorses their behavior saying that it's right because God endorses their behavior. In Daniel chapter 3 and chapter 6, we have the stories of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Right, The famous three of them in the fiery furnace when 
Second person of the Trinity shows up and Daniel being thrown into the lion's den. In both cases, what were they commanded to do? They were commanded to actively worship a false god. It would be the equivalent of if our government suddenly said, hey, we're going to pass a law that every Saturday afternoon you must worship Allah. No, I'm not going to worship that demon. I'm not going to do that. I will worship Christ instead. I will not obey. Third illustration, Acts chapter 4, Peter is actually commanded by the government to stop preaching. And he's up front with them and says, no, I'm not going to do that. We have that category for disobeying the government, but interestingly, look at the size of these commands. Kill babies, worship a false god, stop preaching. And on those things, they're like, fair enough, that's a hill I'm willing to die on. I'm not going to complain when you come kill me. I will not do what you've told me to do. But it's interesting how they wait until it's that. An explicit command for you to go do evil. It's the difference between a country that permits abortion and a country that commands that you have an abortion. Those are two totally different things. I hate that my government allows abortion. I think it's an abomination. I think the Lord's going to judge us for it. It's evil beyond all sorts of evil. One of the greatest mass murderers in human history, our great nation. But it's completely different to have a government that permits it versus a government that commands it. I obey that government when they permit it. I disobey that government when they command it. Now, pastorally, I'm going to get two very quick kind of warnings connected to this. Um, One of the great realizations that kind of Christian theologian academics types are having is that um, the, the quality of our educational theory in America is finally catching up with us. And we've, we've raised um, really two generations of people that are very knowledgeable about a lot of things but do not have the ability to think. I remember listening to Ligon Duncan, he's the uh, emperor of RTS system, the chancellor, uh, a number of years ago, and somebody asked him the question to describe what the average seminary student was like. And he said, they're marvelous. They're, they're more committed to Christianity than any kind of seminary students we've seen in recent years. You know, years past, they, they are committed to work hard. Uh, they are committed to sacrificing. It's costing them more than most because of finances and student loans. They're, they're intelligent. They're, they're magnificent students. They're the best students you could hope for. The only problem is that they don't know how to read, write, think, or speak. That's the direct quote. The only problem is they do not know how to read, write, speak, or think. And he wasn't insulting the RTS students because RTS is one of the, I mean, it's the largest seminary in the English world right now. It's unbelievable. They're amazing. But what he was acknowledging is that as Americans, and particularly as American Christians, we are very skilled at holding opinions and very unskilled at thinking about them. The two warnings that I would have is, please do not mistake your preference 
as a conviction about God's Bible. Right? The, the natural temptation is for us to say, I hate purple, and I hate purple because it's wrong. No, friend, you hate purple because you hate purple. There are lots of good and holy people that love the color purple, and they're probably right and I'm probably wrong. I mean, it's a color God made, so I probably shouldn't be quite so harsh on it. Don't use your preference as an excuse to try to prop it up with the Bible. Well, I read on Facebook that this is evil in such and such and such a way. No, you, no, it's Facebook, friend. They lie. Well, Susie's second cousin's aunt's uncle third's girlfriend's sister told me, I, I don't even know what that relationship was. I got lost about the second person, but I guarantee all you're doing is just trying to prop up a preference. In fact, actually, it, it goes something like this. I, I worked for an older couple when I was in college. Uh, an older gentleman and his wife, I would do manual labor for them in the yard, and they would basically work me into the ground until I died, because I've never met humans that worked that hard before. They would bring me in and feed me lunch, and I remember the first time I had lunch with them, they fed me this nice, lovely meal, marvelous people, I mean, absolutely marvelous people, and I got to dessert, and it was a big thing of, of jello, it was awesome, and she'd taken a big old spoonful of whipped cream and put it on top, and so I get this big old spoonful of whipped cream and jello, and I shove it in my mouth, and then realize that it's mayonnaise, not whipped cream. I, I, I actually dry heat, like it hit my gag reflex because I wasn't expecting it. The natural temptation for me to say is not only is that nasty, but that's an abomination, right? That's evil. It's evil to trick a young college student by putting a gigantic spoonful of mayonnaise on top of jello. That's evil. But realistically, what am I doing? I'm taking my preference and I'm turning my preference into morality. I'm turning my preference into something that I'm trying to suggest is biblical. Why did she put mayonnaise on my jello? Because that's how they ate their jello. I mean, that's wrong, but okay, go for it. <laughs> Most arguments that I hear today about something being right or wrong, the vast majority of them go something to this effect. I don't like it, so it must be wrong. Now, I mean, nobody is quite so honest as to say it that bluntly. I wish they would. It would save us a ton of time. Like, it saved me an hour of them. To, you just don't like it. Just be upfront about that. I'm not mad about it. I don't like purple. It's okay. I get it. But friends, if you're going to disobey the government, you better be able to go to the Bible and construct an argument out of the Bible. Peter says this. He says that these two things form a syllogism that means this, and this is why it's evil, and this is why I'm disobeying. I'm going to be honest with you. I have not heard that argument made in more than two years by a single person. Hear that statement again. As a pastor, I have not heard an argument made from the Bible as to why we're allowed to disobey 
in over two years. I've heard it argued from preference more times than I can count. I've heard it argued for why I don't like purple or mayonnaise more times than I can count. But I cannot say I've heard it argued from the Bible. Now again, if if you are as distrustful of the government as I am, which you probably should be, honestly, the immediate thing that you're going to do is kind of get a little panicky because you're saying, Michael, you're saying literally I have to obey when the government does not have my interest at heart. Yes, that's correct. That's exactly what I'm saying. And the reason why I'm saying that is because that's what the Bible is saying. In fact, actually, that's exactly what Peter is saying here. You're called to obey God's law, certainly higher than you are human law, but you're called to obey the government's commands even when they're bad for you. And the way we can see that is immediately what his thought process turns from and to. Look at verse 17, honor everyone, everyone, be subject to all. This is Luther's famous quote on this, I love this, this is Luther's application of this passage. A Christian is perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant, subject to all. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Next topic, slaves. Be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle masters, but also to the unjust. Right? This is Peter's thought process. Well, if I submit to them, they're not going to take care of me. They're going to hurt me. They are not going to look out for me. They're going to treat me badly. And he's like, that's exactly right, friends. Slaves, be subject to your masters. Oh yeah, by the way, not just the good ones, but the evil ones, as if there's a good master to a slave. Please. No, this is exactly what they're going to do. The government's never going to take care of you. That's not what it's for. I mean, that's what it's designed for. They never do that, though. It's a, a cursed institution. But that doesn't actually get us off from obeying them. And in fact, actually, if we're going to be honest, this is the rest of the chapter for Peter in chapters 2 and then into chapter 3. Slaves, submit to your masters even when they're bad. Wives, submit to their, your husbands even when they're bad. Husbands, live with your wives in tenderness even when they are unkind. And oh yeah, by the way, all of you don't pay back anyone for evil. And the reason why is because Jesus subjected himself even for your sin. Verse 18 of chapter 3, Christ also suffered once for sins, righteous for the unrighteous. Why? Because Jesus was the one who was willing to undergo for you. Maybe that's not enough of an answer for you that Jesus did it, but okay, we'll continue. Second application, well, what, what will happen if they hurt us? Well, secondly, the church always grows the most rapidly when her members are dying. This is a thing that the American church has largely forgotten because we've been so safe because we have oceans on either side, but we've somehow forgotten. We think the church grows best when she's rich. The reality is the church grows best when she dies. 
Tertullian makes the point, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You want to watch the church grow, watch her die. You want to know where the church is going to be located in the next generation, find out where she's dying the fastest now. Anybody want to know where the church was dying the fastest last generation? It was China. Guess where there are more Christians now than just about anywhere else? China. The church is exploding. The church is exploding in Iran. The church is actually actively growing in North Korea. The church grows through the death of her members. I remember a number of years ago watching actually an interview. This was through Voice of the Martyrs. I remember watching an interview with a man who was in a persecuted country and was, his brothers and sisters were literally, literally dying for the name of Jesus. His face was blacked out so you couldn't see it, you know, so he wouldn't be ratted out. But they asked him, like, what do we pray for you? Thinking that you're going to get the answer, pray that the government will leave us alone. That's not what he said. I remember, I mean, it was a haunting thing. He said, do not pray that they will stop persecuting us. Pray that we will be faithful unto death. Like, okay, I'm going to go have a cry now. I'll catch you later. (laughs) You can turn off the video. I'm going to go eat a box of tissues. You see, friends, the reality of the matter is that until Christianity was made legal in the 300s, the entire church viewed her mission was to evangelize the world through dying. That was absolutely how the church viewed it. That's how we grow. We go a place We obey Christ, and they kill us for it, and the church flourishes. Why has the church flourished in America quite so much? Because everybody that came here to start this country came from places where they were dying. That's how this nation was founded, with a Christianity that was born out of persecution and bloodshed. And the reality of the matter is, is this immediately makes us uncomfortable. We insanely get afraid instantly, and it's like, ah! And, and interestingly, I already preached this passage, but you go back in Matthew chapter 10, what does Jesus say? Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Friends, what is the worst that the government can do to you? The worst it can do to you is kill you. And in doing so, promote you to heaven. You get the great promotion. Sin goes away, tears go away, trials goes away. What's the worst they can do to you? I'll end with an illustration from history. Some will recognize the name Polycarp. Polycarp is an amazing, amazing man. I cannot wait to meet him in heaven. Polycarp was born a slave. Uh, raised in bondage, was purchased along the way by a faithful noble woman and eventually was freed along the way. Uh, As he was made free somewhere along the way, was converted at a very young age, I think most likely while still a slave, but somehow ends up being discipled by John, like the Apostle John. 
Polycarp spends his entire life in his early ministry being discipled by John. And when John finally goes to Patmos and then ends up dying, the church is then handed to Polycarp as being kind of the face of Christianity. He has a number of buddies that he runs with, and the Roman government begins to exterminate them one at a time. One of his favorites was drowned terribly. His closest friend was torn apart by wild animals in the... um, like in the gladiatorial games in the Colosseum. I don't know why they waited, but they waited until Polycarp was an old man. At the youngest, he was 86, at possible much closer to 100. Um, The history books are a bit unclear. And the Roman soldiers eventually went to go get him, and we have this very well documented through a number of different sources, what his interchange with them was like. And the early church came to Polycarp and said, you have to run. You have to run. It's time to go. And Polycarp's quote to this is, is, God's will be done. And he opened the door and invited them in. They took him to the local governor, a wicked man, who threatened him over and over and over and over again to recant from the name of Jesus. He refused to do that, in fact, actually giving his famous speech that is, again, very well documented. For 80 and 6 years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I now blaspheme my king who saved me? Why do you delay? Do to me what you will. That is legit. Right? That is the type of faith that I can only dream of. That's the kind of hope of glory that absolutely boggles my mind. So they went to burn him at the stake which if you haven't actually read how that operated, burning someone at the stake was terrible because they couldn't get the fire hot enough. And so you burned from the bottom up, and usually you actually died from bleeding out because your organs began to fall out the bottom. It's a terrible way to die. Some of the early Christians, it took 45 minutes for them to burn alive. When they went to go tie him and nail him to the stake, Polycarp looked at them and said, leave me as I am. For he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain on the pyre unmoved without the security you desire from nails. Polycarp took off all his clothes and figured if it was appropriate for Jesus to die naked, it would be appropriate for him as well. And so as an old man, he walked freely to the stake, wrapped his arms around it, and waited. He never cried out. He didn't recant, and he didn't run from the flames. He died terribly, horribly, in front of a massive crowd. And the church exploded. Friends, I I have a, a bit of a concern that for so many of us, we would be so preoccupied with how unfair it is and how much I'm angry at a president that made me wear a purple shirt that we would be unwilling to go to the stake. And then were we called to go to the stake, we would go kicking and screaming. 
It's amazing to think that the early church, again, 300 years of Christians that thought the only thing we have to do is be faithful and then die. And how far we've come. Because guess what? The Lord loves you. He cares for you. And no one and nothing can take you from out of his hand. It is interesting, too, that Peter and Paul both, that was a huge aspect of their writing. Men that would shortly be murdered by Nero. Again, terrible ways. Traditionally, Peter was crucified upside down because he wasn't good enough uh, to be to be crucified the way that Jesus was. And again, the words in their mouth of the Lord loves his people. Friends, we don't have to be afraid. Our Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. Father, we do confess our sin. I'm a coward. I'm joined by a church, many of whom I'm sure are cowards as well. And we thank you that while we are cowards, Christ was not. And we repent of our preoccupation with secondary and silly things instead of being consumed with Christ Jesus. Forgive us, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.